Hey there, everyone, and welcome to Twin Movies. I'm Ben Phelps, and I'm joined by my regular buddy and banter. Gabe Dowrick. Hello, Ben. Hello, Gabe. I always anticipate you possibly go at starting with <laughs> Gabe Dowrick Esquire or Master Gabe Dowrick or Sir Gabe Dowrick or some sort of right. signature to your name. You mean uh, you're putting some pepper on that steak? <laughs> exactly. Uh, A little bit of sizzle. Yeah, sure. I, I often anticipate that too, but in the moment I can't think of anything funny to say. So I just I just go with my name. <laughs> yep. Um, so Gabe Dowrick, as you know, every year. Okay, thank you. <laughs> Hollywood releases two movies based on the same idea. So we ask the big question, which movie did it better? Today we're reviewing two twin movies about a high schooler who travels back in time from the 1980s and discovers that their choices will change the future. It's Back to the Future versus Peggy Sue Got Married. Let the time travel antics begin. So, as usual, let's kick off this episode with an overview of these twin movies and a flashback to our first encounter with them. On 3rd July 1985, Back to the Future was released in the US. Here's the synopsis from the Internet Movie Database. Marnie McFly, a 17-year-old high school student, is accidentally sent 30 years into the past in a time-travelling DeLorean invented by his close friend, the eccentric scientist, Doc Brown. So, Gabe, 85, where were you? Did you catch Back to the Future at the movies? Were you born? (laughs) (laughs) What was that experience like? Great questions, Ben. Yes, I was born. I was two years old. No, I didn't see it at the cinema. It's weird, this movie, because for people our age and... You know, I don't want to reveal my age, but if you're a mathematician, you could figure it out based on what I just said. It's sort of one of those, like, culturally defining movies. But not for me. I barely remember the first time I saw it, and I think I've only ever seen this movie, like, two or three times in the 35 years since it's come out, despite owning it on Blu-ray. I don't know. I just sort of missed the boat on this one. (laughs) Wow. Okay, this is going to be a really interesting episode. Uh, so you must have caught this in on VHS, I assume. I guess so as a kid. You know, I'm I'm sure I watched it once or twice on VHS as a kid. But, yeah, I mean, I have no real recollections of it. And certainly, you know, as you, you think of those sort of movies that you loved when you were younger that were sort of the formative film-watching experiences that shaped the way you think about, you know, story and the craft, this isn't one of them for me. Like... Like and I'm and not because it's a bad movie. I'm absolutely not digging it for that. I just it just was never that film for me. Um, I mean, was it that film for you? Is this one of the films that shaped who you are? One hundred percent. Wow. Okay. This movie is like all those Twitter takes you see every five years. So when this film celebrated its twentieth, twenty fifth, thirtieth, and now thirty fifth anniversary, and everyone really watches it because apparently the thing you do now is watch this movie at least every five years. And I get all the references, uh, how it was culturally relevant to them. This film was really defined to me. Now, I didn't see it at the cinema. So for podcast listeners who haven't heard my whole backstory, I've mentioned before many times that there's a window between around 98 and 2000 for three years where I saw a hell of a lot of movies at the cinema when I worked as a manager at an art house cinema while studying uni. And that was also coincidentally at a weird time in Hollywood history when so many of these twin movies came out. As for though 10 years earlier, sort of around this time, 85, this is like 
to, to try and basically define my age. I'm 10 at this stage. And my parents weren't into movies, aren't into movies, unlike your dad, Gabe, they don't do movies. Well, wait, wait, wait. So, I mean, my dad might have just found going to the movies was preferable to having a conversation with me. Let's not <laughs> let's not say that he was into the movies or anything like that. I mean, let's not applaud him <laughs> I mean, too much. Yeah, come on, you know. <laughs> let's not paint his attendance at movies no, as being no, enthusiasm no. when it could actually be an avoidance. Uh, exactly, exactly. Anyway, sorry. As you were, <laughs> go on. So the backstory here is that my dad's always been a sports guy. He watches sports, and for him, that's the way to fill a weekend, and it's unpredictable. It's fresh every weekend. It's fresh every season. That's his gig. And that and current affairs and news. On the other hand, mum, and I got divorced like your parents gave early on, mum doesn't watch anything that is fiction. She only watches nonfiction because she thinks, well, it's fiction. Why will I get emotionally invested when it's just made up? (laughs) Wow. Yeah, which is really quite funny because she's actually really into art, which is actually a fiction of itself. But- Whilst attending art galleries, loving fine art, it's either fine art for her or documentaries. But fiction's like, why would I read fiction, watch fiction when it's made up, can't be real, therefore there's no authenticity to the emotional journey I'm on? How can I possibly get invested? Well, I can see why you'd want to become a filmmaker with that sort of, uh, you know, (laughs) support. (laughs) So the funny thing is here, people talk about, you know, like you hear about Martin Scorsese being taken to movies like when he's eight years old as an asthmatic and just being inculcated into cinema history through his dad. You hear about Quentin Tarantino seeing these uh, black exploitation, what are they called? Black station? Black exploitation movies, yeah. Or the black exploitation movies with his mum and his mum's boyfriends and so on. He was also like 10 and way too young for those movies. I have none of that history. In fact, me loving movies and loving fiction is almost a intellectual rebellion against my parents. <laughs> wow. That's that's the dorkiest rebellion ever. <laughs> I like it. I, res- I respect it. I respect it. I know. I know. So I r- rarely saw any movies at all. And I saw Back to the Future at someone's house because my parents, not really being into movies, didn't get a VHS or beta player till, very early, till later on. Dad was actually, I think, given a beta player and had like two videos and that's it. And we occasionally hired videos, but- really to keep us occupied and distracted so he'd have a drink in the background. But he wasn't watching movies like Jaws or whatever himself. So we didn't see any movies at the cinema. We didn't see any movies at home. But we had these friends that had a pool and a VHS player. And they had like VHS play in the rumpus room downstairs. So it was basically like a kid's one. And we'd go there to their house in summer, go for a swim and then watch movies. And I think I saw Back to the Future for the first time and probably – four more times after that at their house in good old-fashioned four-by-three ratio, like all those classic horror films, Gabe, that you refer to seeing on VHS. You know where the parts where it's been rewound and it's a bit sort of scratchy with a static and so on over the screen? Sure. That's how I first experienced Back to the Future. And I associate VHS romantically with that particular movie like you do with, say, some of those terrible, you know, 70s, 80s horror films. What do you mean Terrible. <laughs> what do you call terrible? Sorry, sorry, great, great. Well, let's just say some of those films suit their aesthetic, if you know what I'm saying. So, wait, what you're saying, oh, you were here watching like uh, Back to the Future on VHS like a champion and, oh, Gabe was watching Frankenhooker. <laughs> For example, yeah. <laughs> sure. I also saw this film, I think, a lot on Friday nights. Right, right. I sort of feel that this is the sort of film that played on Friday nights um, and sometimes Sundays 
and you watch it over two hours because of the commercial breaks. And so it was always that great film you drop into. So mm. that's my association with this movie. And I didn't actually get to see it again in 16 by 9 ratio or is it 2.35 by 1, but widescreen regardless. Cleaned up, looking really slick until probably DVD in the mid-2000s. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Now, later on, about a year later, uh, on the 10th of October 1986, Peggy Sue Got Married was released. Here's the synopsis from IMDb. Peggy Sue faints at a high school reunion. When she wakes up, she finds herself in her own past just before she finished school. So, Gabe, talk me through when and how you first watched Peggy Sue Got Married. Uh, ben, I first watched Peggy Sue Got Married this week. Um, it's weird because I guess it's one of the few Francis Ford Coppola movies, or Francis Coppola, as he's credited on this, films that I hadn't actually seen. And to be honest, I think I texted you and said, I didn't even realise he had directed this movie. Um, and I got your text message and realised that too. I had no idea. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. So I don't know. It's In that sort of weird period where he had made uh, Peggy Sue Got Married and Gardens of Stone and Tucker, The Man in His Dream, sort of before he sort of went back to the sort of, I guess, the the... That that which he was known for, The Godfather Part Three, um, and I guess it had just sort of passed me, passed me by. Um, so yeah, look, I'm very, very fresh to Peggy Sue Got Married. What about you? I watched Peggy Sue Got Married at five a.m. this morning. <laughs> um, nice. That's the perfect time for all films. Yeah, cramming into screening before the podcast recording. Right. Look, this is a weird situation. This film is like. Excuse the pun, like a time travel movie in the sense that I kind of knew it existed. I've seen films like Apocalypse Now and The Godfather many times over. But just like you, this fits in that weird point in time where it was before Coppola did Dracula it's, and before Godfather 3. It's after Apocalypse Now and the first two Godfathers. And I just thought this film either basically had no one in it or was made by a nobody or it tanked at the box office. And transpires, I was wrong on both accounts, which we'll get to in relation to the box office down the track. Mm -hmm. But this film was actually successful, right. which makes it even stranger that I'm thinking, how did I not see a film with early Nicolas Cage and Jim Carrey, which we'll get to, by Francis Ford Coppola, um, a time travel premise in a, in a sense, and I love time travel movies. I just don't know how this somehow fell off my radar. It feels like a film that just has basically vanished into the annals of cinema history. Yeah. I mean, I wonder if it was because, you know, when I was a kid, the um, the sort of movies I like, you know, I don't know, to, to, I guess maybe admitting some sort of like latent sexism or something, that maybe I just wasn't that into a movie about some lady going back in time. And I was much more into watching Eddie Murphy blow shit up in like Beverly Hills Cop 2. But, you know what I mean? like Yeah, totally. But isn't it surprising that you haven't heard about this film? Let's just say you well, I, I, play that logic through from your sister or your mum or other people. Like this film feels like a film that nobody talks about. Like no one references in popular culture. No one talks about the actor that went on to become so-and-so. Like Nicolas Cage in this film doing early versions of Nicolas Cage 
Yet when you hear references of Nicolas Cage's background, they never mention this film at all. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. Even though there's very strong Nicolas Cage here. There's Jim Carrey. Like, I thought Jim Carrey became a thing in The Mask. He's in this film for, you know, enough to go, oh, it's a a Jim Carrey character. You know, it's Jim Carrey doing early Jim Carrey. I mean, I guess maybe in my head I kind of mix this movie up with, like, Earth Girls Are Easy, which is another early Jim Carrey performance. I don't know. It's one of those ones. You're that- right. It's like that Shazam thing, isn't it? Like the I don't know. It just like Earth Girls are easy and Peggy got Sue got married. I, I I agree. I've kind of conflated those two in my memory as being one of the same movie. Even though they have actually very different premises, um, I don't know. Look, you, I think you I think you're right. It's I guess it's just a sort of cult curiosity, if that. Um, and it's very surprising to hear you say that it was actually financially successful, but. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe the the how long ago was this movie made? 30 34 years? Yeah. 34 years ago. I don't know. Maybe maybe if it was 1993 people would be talking about it more, but just so long has passed now that sort of mid mid-tier movies are absolutely fading from consciousness, even ones directed by one of the greatest directors of all times just sort of lost, you know? I've got a theory on this which is Linked to films like Clueless and Grease, but let's save it for the review. Okay. So before we do our review and our comparison, let's find out how we got here with a quick shallow dive into Hollywood history. So, look, I will start with Back to the Future, but what can you say about this film that hasn't been said already? I mean- It's weird though, isn't it? Like- it's almost trepidatious to do a podcast where we even talk about this because it's so exhaustive, <laughs> like, that people have already... It is, it is. And also, too, like, what else can you bring to the table? I mean, we can bring a comparison of these two movies, but in preparation of this podcast recording, in the last week alone, because I think it's the 35th anniversary, but just coincidentally in the last week, there have been two, no, three really, really good podcast episodes on podcasts I like about this particular movie, Back to the Future. And, you know, they they say a lot I've heard before. They share opinions I hadn't heard before. But it's just so hard to bring something new to the table. So I don't think I will. <laughs> nice. Other than nice. to say some okay. real basics. So for the podcast listeners who haven't listened to podcasts about Back to the Future or read the behind the scenes, very quickly... Long-time collaborators Bob Gale and Robert Zemeckis first conceived of Back to the Future in 1980, and they wanted to develop a time travel movie, but they were struggling for a satisfying narrative. And they were pretty desperate because their previous comedies, I Want to Hold Your Hand in 78 and Use Cars in 80. Good movie. Had fared well, yeah, but they'd been like financial disasters. Right. And even their 1941 film. <laughs> a terrible film. <laughs> yeah, made in 1979. Directed by Steven Spielberg. Who? Like Steven Spielberg. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like one of the most famous directors of all time was also a critical commercial bomb as well. Anywho, basically what happened was after Used Cars was released, Gail visited his parents and came across his father's high school yearbook. And he kind of questioned what it would be like to have been friends with his dad at the same age and realised that, you know what, they probably wouldn't have got on. And so he thought he'd test that theory if he could travel back in time to when he and his parents were a similar age. And then he shared that with Zemeckis and, of course, that kind of got the ball rolling because Zemeckis himself had often found that 
his mum's stories were kind of contradictory, like she perhaps was painting a rosier picture of what she was like at his age uh, than she actually was. So that's sort of the background. Um, The film went through various drafts and so on. Uh, At one stage, one of the key features of it, the DeLorean, was actually at the time for budget reasons, it was meant to be set at a nuclear power plant. That's where they got the idea to try and power the car back to the future. But for budget reasons, they had to use the lightning strike instead. So all these small little details that came about as a result of lack of money, but I think it's some of the most defining characteristics of the movie. Uh, I'm going to leave it there because, again, a lot has been said, and we'll get to Eric Stoltz, who was actually cast and filmed for five weeks um, later on in the casting. Any other tidbits, Gabe, you want to share with the listeners in relation to the origins of this movie? Um, I mean, there's some pretty fantastic and exhaustive making of docos about this film. It's not something where information is hard to hard to find. It's it's pretty amazing how much they had their script rejected around Hollywood, who I think at the time were sort of more into the more, I guess you call them, ribald um, uh, high school comedies. Because, you know, like in the late 70s and early 80s, it was stuff like Animal House and Porky's. And I guess Back to the Future compared to those films is, is pretty... Chased. Cha- yeah, chased, exactly. Um, so I think because they couldn't get it up, Zemeckis went off and directed Romancing the Stone, which weirdly, as we talk about Peggy Sue Got Married being forgotten, Romancing the Stone, which I was probably much more successful, is also one of those movies that absolutely no one talks about now, just as a little segue. When was the last time you were in conversation about sort of swashbuckling action-adventure movies and people were like, oh, yeah, what about Romancing the Stone? Classic. Never. Well, isn't there some sort of twin movie situation there as well? I always confuse Romancing the Stone with another film that was set uh, at a similar time period where you sort of follow a swashbuckling star who chases a woman. Maybe actually it was inspired by Raiders of the Lost Ark. Oh, is this- Am I recalling that rightly? Directed by this nobody you mentioned before who directed 1941, perhaps. I haven't heard of that movie either. Perhaps, perhaps. Um, <laughs> so, so yeah, look, I, you, you're right. So much has been said and wrote about this um, this. This film. I mean, are we going to talk about the title um, or the, what the original title? What the um, what was it? Sid Sid Sheinberg wanted the movie to be titled when they were. No, save that for the awards. Okay, we'll save that. Okay, well, prepare thyself. That's a fun one. <laughs> but um, but yeah, look, they developed the movie. They wrote the movie. I can't imagine this film with the time machine being a fridge. That would be weird. So whatever development they did worked. <laughs> um, all right, let's jump to Peggy Sue got married now. Perhaps it's an indication of the cultural irrelevance of this movie compared to Back to the Future. There's actually very little to find when researching the origins of this movie. I think what's very interesting is that I'm a huge Jonathan Demme fan and he was going to be the original director and was going to star Deborah Winger. And even after Jonathan Demme left, Winger was still attached, but she got injured, unfortunately, and then they brought in Kathleen Turner. But to think, uh, yeah, to think that Demme could have been the director makes it really interesting. Um, and then he was going to be replaced by Penny Marshall. Oh, yeah. Uh, and that would have been her sort of feature film directing debut. But she also had creative differences with the writers and left. And essentially after all of that, Francis Ford Coppola, whose career was in tatters at the stage financially, he came onto it, tried to get Winger back. She said no, and then we ended up with Kathleen Turner 
directed by Francis Ford Coppola. Yeah, right. Yeah. I'd like to see the uh, Penny Marshall version of this. I think I think she could have brought a, you know, some charm to the film. Yeah, totally, totally. Okay, let's uh, jump into our review. So let's start with the first, the classic, Back to the Future. Gabe, did you like it? Float your boat. And was it a good execution of this common premise it shares with Peggy Sue? Yeah, I mean, it's a very fun movie. But like I said, I don't know. Like, this is absolutely not a ding on the film because, you know, the the script is inc- it's like a Swiss watch. It's so well wrote and everything's set up and executed. And I just, I was just never into this movie. And every time I put it on, I quite enjoy it. I think Michael J. Fox is fantastic and Christopher Lloyd is really great and Crispin Glover is awesome and it's really nicely directed, but I don't know. It's me. It's me. I know the problem is with me. You know, I don't want people to be like, oh, it's it's me, but I just never, I just never into it. And and I don't know why. I don't know why. Tell me why, Ben. Diagnose my problem. This film is a almost perfect movie. And I, look, I know we watch movies from our childhood and then romanticise them and then go back and, you know, with rose-tinted glasses, not see the flaws. But I think this film ticks so many boxes and that's what makes it exceptional. It was a success then. I think it resonates today. During COVID-19, they've been playing this movie in drive-ins around America, which is a testament to being a feel-good movie that basically makes people's spirits rise in a really shitty time. Mm. And the fact that the film is timeless, like kids are watching this movie now and it's aged really well. I mean, not to jump the gun in terms of, you know, which film has aged better, but this film benefits in the same way that other films like Grease or Happy Days can benefit in that it was made at a time but was set in the past of that time. So the only thing that's going to basically ding it, I think, is going to be the visual effects. And the visual effects here I think are used really smartly. I mean... This film was made by one of the guys who, for better and worse, Robert Zemeckis, has defined himself with technical innovation in making each movie, often at the expense of the movie and the narrative, in his search to try and push the boundaries. He's very much like, I would say, James Cameron. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Not as successful. Po- po- yes, if Polar Express to James Cameron's Avatar, sure. <laughs> well, I mean, but like- no, I, I'm with you. I'm with you. He's absolutely been on the forefront of some pretty, pretty exceptional leaps in technology. Uh, but you're right. And being in the forefront, you do still end up with bloody. Um, what was that? <laughs> the one he made even before Polar Express. Uh, Beowulf. Uh, Beowulf. Based on the yeah, yeah, you end up with that. <laughs> you know. Oh, look, if you go through his filmography. It's pretty ugly and, and pretty patchy. So actually, just to give you an idea, let's go through his movies really quickly now and work out where it's gone wrong. So he starts off in 1972 with The Lift, does a few short films, does Used Cars 1980, I mentioned before. Good movie. Romance in the Stone. Good movie. Sorry, Used Cars in 80, Romance in the Stone you mentioned 84, Back to the Future 85. Classic. Amazing Stories 86. Who Framed Roger Rabbit, 88. So Fuck really yeah. pushing Classic. the- Yeah, exactly. I love that movie. Does Back to the Future Part 2 in 89, Back to the Future Part 3 in 90, Death Becomes Her 92. Again, lots of visual effects. You imagine, you know, you recall that head spinning around on the top of Meryl Streep. Great stuff. Uh, Forrest Gump, oh, yes. old footage and new footage being integrated. Um, Contact, yeah, nice. CG aliens and so on. 
What Lies Beneath. A lot of oh, uh, tricks good. with like uh, cameras seamlessly blended as they'd swooped in from, say, a helicopter shot and then blended into a close-up. Castaway. Very good. Castaway was probably actually quite modest, I'd say, in relation to visual effects. Okay, here it gets a bit shaky. Now, now here, yeah, that's now we're falling down the. So the Polar Express 2004. He goes, let's do CGI realistic characters. Horrible. Except for the realistic bit. <laughs> then does Beowulf in 2007. Then a Christmas Carol in 2009. So he's really trying to push this idea of uh, performance ca- capture or motion capture CG characters. He then walks away, thank goodness, and does Flight in 2012. Great film. And as I go through these, what jumps out to me is the films where he isn't pushing the technical envelope I enjoyed the most. Like Flight 2012 is a great movie. Oh, very good. There's a bit of flair when he has that scene of the plane flying upside down. But generally, Flight and Castaway and Contact, three of it, three great movies, are all pretty low-key in relation to visual effects or practical effects, right? Yeah, I mean, uh, con- uh, not contact, bloody. I mean, contact has quite a lot of visual effects with the spaceship and stuff, but and that's true. Yeah, and Castaway has that really great plane crash, which you know would have been a heck of a thing to shoot. But it, they're certainly not the full CGI, you know, creepo face uh, films that you know the Polar Express and Beowulf are. Or later, what was that stupid ass Welcome to Marwin one? Oh, Jesus. Well, that's, yeah, so we get to The Walk in 2015, Allied in 2016, mm. Welcome to Marwan in 2018, where he basically, it's that kind of dreamy one where Steve Carell imagines lots of people in his world like Ken dolls. The Witches in 2020 being dropped onto video on demand uh, on HBO Max. And then he's got Pinocchio coming up, which will again be visual effects. So, uh, yeah. Very interesting background, and this film I think stands up really well because, and has dated well because the visual effects are really well done. The film has a lot of heart. This is me basically convincing you, Gabe, why this film is so good. Um, it, it is. It is. It's every. I mean, here's here's a, a major, uh, I guess, accolade in relation to what's achieved. This film has a creepy concept. <laughs> what if you went back in time and your mum was trying to crack onto you? Like that alone, if you pitch that to any major studio without the context, it reads as creepy as can be, right? I don't know. Given the popularity of incest porn on Pornhub at the moment, I think you get an automatic green light. <laughs> yeah. Back in 85, perhaps a little bit more reserved. So that's kind of a bit of a bizarre concept. There are so many things that shouldn't work about this film. Like Marty McFly is friends with an old man and seems to have no other friends his own age except for his girlfriend. And it seems to be very popular. Everyone seems to like and respond to him. But on screen, his only mate seems to be uh, an old man, which is a bit weird for a young teenage boy to be hanging out with an old man. But <laughs> you just buy it. You just buy it. Like you don't question the fact like why is this 16 or 17-year-old dropping off at an old man's house in the mornings on the way to school. Like, if you pitch that again out of context, it's a very strange idea. But it works. An old man who's an old man who's embroiled in time some sort of shenanigan with, like, Iranian terrorists as well. Yeah, exactly. And then you've got, like, his father, played by Crispin Glover, who, if you'd been filming that movie, watching the performance unfold, you think, 
what is this performance? This is totally unnaturalistic. It's incongruous with the performances delivered by, say, uh, Fox in terms of being naturalistic. It is a really weird heightened performance, right? Like Crispin Glover is doing some Nicolas Cage-esque stuff here and we get to the awards, it's going to be a hell of a showdown because he's doing <laughs> some weird-ass wacky stuff. Would you agree? Oh, yeah. I, look, Crispin Glover's probably one of my favourite things about this film. He's making some pretty bold choices and watching and reading some of the behind-the-scenes stuff Apparently these were his, what ended up on screen were only his most medium-sized offers. He was doing some even bigger things that had to get dialed dialed down. But it's certainly one of the things that make the film memorable for me, you know, that the, 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 his dad is such an oddball, you know. Um, yeah, he's absolutely nuts. And I guess that makes him, I guess, a really good contrast to... Marty. Mm. Like, they're just so different. Um, it's funny, in trying to review this film, I just think it back to a million podcasts, a million behind-the-scenes making ofs, a million times I've watched it, and I can almost forget to describe why I like it because it's so obvious it's like oxygen. Like, Do you find it comforting to watch, Ben? Is it like a warm blanket you can put around yourself that if you're feeling down one day you can just, you know, snuggle up on the couch and put on Back to the Future and maybe... Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, drink your drink your troubles away while enjoying a you know when Huey when Huey Lewis kicks in at the very start. Yep, and Money McFly's on the skateboard. I'm just I'm happy as can be. So what I should do is just boil my review down to the really obvious stuff that seems so obvious I forget to mention it, and that's this: time travel is cool. <laughs> Having a car as a time travel machine, you forget how old that would have been. Like, we're used to the TARDIS and Doctor Who or static devices throwing people back in time or something like Star Trek where you are sort of like vanished and you pop up somewhere else. But the idea of taking a regular car at the time, so not a regular car, but a car you could conceivably buy if you had enough money and making the car a time travel device, that was pretty unique, right? Uh, the idea of, I think, encountering your parents that's the part when I read every review, we kind of forget about. And I've thought about this myself before. Like when I was trying to juggle with uh, my parents as I came into adulthood and they were treating me like a kid still, and I struggled for about 10 years, you know, through your 20s. And then around 30, I realized, you know what? Don't see your parents as, you know, these deities or these people on a pedestal. Like, imagine that they're just the people you see at the shopping centre, like in line, you know, to buy some clothes or buy food or whatever. <laughs> or like like just – and then it normalises them. And After that moment, you just started calling your parents by their first names and you stopped being breastfed by your mum. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> took me 30 years to get the teeth. <laughs> but then I realised that, like, I thought, hang on, what would it be like if I met my parents say – at the pub when I was studying at uni or when I was in the workplace, would I get on with them? And I actually realised, and this is the case for the majority of people, I think, that just like Bob Gale, the writer, and Zemeckis, I wouldn't be friends with my parents if I met them at the same age. That's not to say my parents aren't great people. It's just about compatibility as friends. And this is the struggle everyone has as a kid, right, is that you probably wouldn't 
always, I'd say for the majority of people, they wouldn't perhaps be your first choice people that you'd organically become friends with and met them at a party. Nice people, just different in personality. And that's what this film gets so right, I think, is that it basically puts everyone in the shoes, Marty McFly, seeing his parents, going back, realising that perhaps his mum and dad weren't either that dorky or restrained. I mean, in the case of Crispin Glover, the dad, he's definitely that dorky. But he has heart. And Lorraine, Marty's mum, isn't as chaste. She's a little bit sort of uh, flirtatious and more amorous than she alludes as a middle-aged person. But he sees the hope and the youth in his parents and realises that they were just like him and it challenges him to see them beyond just being his parents. And that's a really great lesson for everyone to see when they see this film. So I think that besides the cool skateboarding, the cool romance, the cool time travel, the cool tension and the fight scenes, I think it's one of those parts that gets a lot of it gets under under appreciated by people. Mm. But is it's that heart that's the spine of this movie, and perhaps because you've got a heart of stone, go uh-huh. and you don't see your parents uh-huh. as equals or individuals. No, that's no. why this film doesn't resonate with you. <laughs> I'm joking. No, uh, my parents barely anthropomorphized ATMs. You know, all I it was just. <laughs> Harsh and my buzz, raining on my parade, telling me what I couldn't do, and you know. So yeah, do you think? Do you think that this film is set between two time periods gives you a double whammy of nostalgia? Now I know you weren't around for the nineteen fifties, Ben, but you know if you were watching this film in the in the nineties or early two thousands, if you were, it it appeals to a huge age bracket. You know that. That idea of it being like a four-quadrant crowd-pleaser because of the dual nostalgias, do you think there's a potency there? Yeah, I'd never thought of that, but I think you're absolutely spot on. It's like the best of Grease meets Ready Player One. Oh, God. It's not – no, but it's right. It's 1950s nostalgia. Like think about Mad Men, for example. Uh-huh. Oh, that was, that was 1960s. But I think it definitely appeals to people who appreciate the 50s and 60s in relation to, you know – for good thing, for good reasons and bad reasons, um, fashion, sophistication, style, but also the fact that you could say anything, or if you're sexist now, you'd appreciate the sexism then. And then, of course, <laughs> wait, what? If I just go back to that one, people would like this movie. That's like, ah, uh, yeah, like I'm. I, I, was th- I was thinking Mad Men. I was thinking. No, Mad Men. I get you. That's that's a funny idea. Like, <laughs> imagine making movies for people to really hark back to the the old days of sexism when it was when you could really, uh, you know. Um, tell them the what fors. Yeah, but isn't that essentially what a western is for many men? Like we talked about yeah, true, Tombstone true. versus Wider recently in a recent podcast app, and I think westerns for some American men in a gun culture and so on, it taps into the simplicity of you know men were men and guns were guns and women knew their place and a lot of those sexist attitudes, potentially racist attitudes, but the idea, the way that people sort of uh, romanticise wrongly the simplicity of the time. Mm. They forget about the uh, typhoid and the polio and all that sort of stuff and the really bad food, but go, oh, well, it was simple. Like everyone knew their roles, particularly in relation to gender, you know, mm. or trade or business. Like no one was a weird, you know, software developer selling Bitcoin. It was like you'd <laughs> raise sheep and you'd sell sheep. You'd shoot buffalo and you'd sell their hides. <laughs> right. Simple times. And do you think Back to the Future – 
it certainly trades in that a little bit. You know, the 1950s that it presents compared to the 80s, the town square is uh, much more a lively, well-manicured place back in the day compared to the 80s. You know, it certainly harks back to a sort of some element of golden ageism. Yeah, I mean... Isn't this the nature of people talking about make America great again, right? Like you think back, they think back to the, the 50s thinking that was one of the pinnacles of American civilization. Um, fine if you're white and male, not necessarily if you're black and or female, like Goldie, you know, who becomes a town mayor in the 80s, the character Goldie. Mm. But, you know, he's kind of like derided in the 50s and, yeah, uh, sort of tease for being ambitious in that way because of the colour of his skin. Um, I also think that people watching this film now look back on the 80s in the same way, like a simple time. Um, that's probably the attraction, I think, of many time travel movies is that basically people can see what they want to see in the past and it, films are always about escapism, right? You escape your present. If, you had, if you've had a shitty job or your relationship's in tatters or your kids are annoying or whatever it might be, you can see a movie and escape. And if the movie goes back in time, it's to a time when things might have been more, in a way you romanticise that time better, but also the fantasy and the narrative is that you yourself could go back and get everything right again. Or get mm. if you got it wrong the first time, you can course correct. Totally, totally. So, you know, yeah, be able to throw a football over those mountains like Uncle Rico. <laughs> How much you want to make a bet I can throw a football over the mountains? Yeah, coach would have put me in fourth quarter. We'd have been state champions, no doubt. No doubt in my mind. You better believe things would have been different. I'd have gone pro in a heartbeat. I'd be making millions of dollars and living in a big old mansion somewhere. You know, soaking it up in a hot tub with my soulmate. I reckon you know a lot about cyberspace. You, you ever come across anything like time travel? Easy. I've already looked into it for myself. Right on. Right on. But do you think, do you think this, both, or this film takes enough advantage of, of that? I mean... Here's a here's a here's a what do you call it a confession, Ben? I was the dickhead who always weirdly liked Back to the Future two more, <laughs> only because it seemed more interesting because it did weave backwards and forwards between the movies and into the future and messed around a lot more with like you know the almanac and going back and and putting your money in the stocks or whatever and becoming a rich guy in the future. Do you think this one, you know, what Marty invents a skateboard and tries to invent rock and roll? Does it do enough with that? Yeah, so that's a good take. I've heard that take before in that Back to the Future 2 is more of a time travel movie. Mm. So Back to the Future 1, he goes back in time. He has to get back to the future. That's where the title comes from, Gabe, by the way. <laughs> oh, because in the past his present is the future. I know. I do get it. It's confusing. It's confusing. Um, but, yeah, I mean, this is the thing about some of these films that are high in concept, like – it's a time travel movie, but time travel is like the incident that happens, the inciting incident, and he has to get back, so he has to get the car working with the lightning and whatever. 
But everything else is basically a drama where he's trying to avoid his mum cracking onto him and getting his parents to get together. And so in some respects, you'd actually argue that it's not predominantly a time travel movie, whereas like you say, Time Travel 2, it's very much like the butterfly effect, isn't it? Yeah, and it's interesting. Do you think, and maybe this is a question for the sequelizing part of the podcast, but if you were making this movie now, do you think some sort of exec would slap the front of the script with their hand and say to the writers, look, it's a good script, kid, but there's not enough time travel in it. He's got to zip around a little more. Yeah, it's funny. I think you're right. Um, You know, like films like Time Crimes and uh, Primer, where the film just is this unspooling ball of wool wool, and it goes, everything just goes pear-shaped as they try and correct each time a travel backwards and forwards. And so it's a time travel movie through and through and time travel pretty much infuses every scene. Um, So let me ask you, is that, you know, as I'm the psychologist and you're the patient lying on the uh, lounge there and I'm trying to diagnose your lack of enthusiasm for this movie, do you think that's why you like the second film more than the first? No, because, like, I love, say, Terminator and Terminator 2 and as you described Back to the Future as not, in fact, a... I mean, obviously, there's a time travel movie, but where the time travel is just a, a, a and it's sort of inciting incident. It, I guess the same is true of like the Terminator films. You know, the Terminators go back in time, but then they're just sort of uh, chase movies. Yeah, Terminator One and Two, they're basically just stalker movies, right? Or Halloween? Yeah, I mean, but no. Well, I guess Terminator One particularly, Terminator Two is, you know, I guess is the Jim Cameron massive, you know, making the scale huger for a for a for a sequel. I bet a sequel to his own movie. But the f- the first movie is basically sleeping with the enemy. <laughs> no. <laughs> uh, yeah, but like, but so so no, I guess that's not that's not it. I the, in diagnosing my problem, I I, I feel like. It just it just never quite clicked with me. And, again, I know it's a really good movie and I really admire a hell of a lot about it. I think it's just one of those movies where it, unless it was one of those sort of formative films for you, it just it's like I don't get why people like Goonies, you know. I just I don't, I don't think Goonies is that great. Um, yeah, I, I agree with, with Goonies. How about Lost Boys? Yeah, I love Lost Boys. Love it. <laughs> Fucking love it. Okay, so Lost Boys came out around the same time, didn't it? And so you would have been also two or three or four. So you, you would have caught it on VHS later on? Oh, uh, yeah. I mean, I, I watched Lost Boys heaps. I think when it came out in 87 or 88. So, you know. and But similar situation that you didn't catch the movies. You no. weren't like the target audience at the time. So you're catching it like 10 years down the track. But that film resonated with you. So it's not necessarily about the fact that it came out before you're at movie-seeing age, it's that the characters or the story or the execution didn't grab you. Yeah, I I mean, I guess so. And and there's just, there's no, I, I guess I just loved Timmy Capello's oiled-up sax man in The Lost Boys more than I liked Michael J. Fox playing Johnny B. Good, you know, and as I got older, I would get drunk and do interpretive dances to Cry Little Sister from Lost Boys, but I just never went back to Back to the Future. <laughs> there's a lot There's a lot to unpack there.
I reckon to try and understand why this film didn't grab you like the rest of society, we should jump to our review of Peggy Sue Got Married to compare these movies to see what it brought to the table and if it actually enticed you anymore. How does that sound? That sounds pretty good, Ben. All right. So Peggy Sue Got Married, did you like it? Uh, what grinded your gears? And did do a better version of the same concept than Back to the Future? Bloody fantastic opening shot in Peggy Sue Got Married. Some classic blocking. Did you do you recall that? It like starts on the TV and pulls out into a close up and then gets wider and moves in and with Helen Hunt and Yeah, apparently they use like body doubles and so on to try and create that effect as well. Yeah, it's like not it's a, a it's not an actual reflection. It's someone performing the foreground Kathleen Turner. Anyway, I was like, man, this this is gonna be good. This opening shot, it's grabbing me. I'm liking the filmmaking here. And the movie really had me I was really into it, invested in her present tense dilemma of her like sh- schmuck cheating dumbass husband played by Nick Cage and then she's at her, you know, what do you call those things, reunions and she talks to the nerd burger guy and, it, you know, all the sort of place setting of, oh, we're going to go back and meet all these characters in the past and that's going to be really fun, like the mum from that TV show where the dad turned out to be a pederast and... Jim Carrey and and stuff like that. And is that Kevin J. O'Connor playing a hunky guy on a poster? Wow, I'm really with this. And then she went back in time and I kind of started losing it a little bit. Started started drifting. (laughs) Started drifting off a little bit there, you know. (laughs) I guess because I couldn't quite work out what the the deal was. And weirdly, so what's the plot? She's dissatisfied with her current lot in life in the present, is transported back in time, because she passes out and is in high school and is trying not to make the same mistakes that she made. Is that a fair description? I think so. And, I mean, it's essentially because she is divorcing Nicolas Cage in the present. Mm. She goes to the school reunion she faints. Mm. She is inexplicably transformed back to the reunion or back to that same time 25 years earlier. In, yeah, in the 60s, yeah. 1960. And it's a chance to basically, I guess, do what she couldn't do, didn't do at the time, which basically comes down to not marrying Nicolas Cage. Yeah. Ticking ticking the box, going out with the other guy. Yeah. Essentially. Yeah. And then the lesson of the movie is, well, you know what? Um, Care for what you wish for and sometimes you got it right the first time and – or if you do make a choice one way, you'll find your way back to the same decision ultimately. I I guess, but to me, that's the bit that was weird. Like, I I don't know if it was because I was expecting something in a way more formulaic, but I assumed she'd go back and realise marrying a guy who would eventually, uh, you know, uh, become sort of uh, a self-hating, blaming her for his failures, cheating on her uh, ex-husband she would go back in time and realise marrying him was a mistake and, you know, maybe perhaps she should marry the guy who turns out to be a billionaire or chase the 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 one that got away, which was the sort of like poetry writing, you know, uh, cool guy. In the end she just decides that, no, she should marry Nicolas Cage. And I guess we presume that does she... Do the same mistakes end up happening or in the guy, in having gone back, does she get a different future? It's kind of not clear. 
I guess. Well, she does return to the exact point where she fainted at the start of the movie. So nothing has changed. It's all exactly the same. So No, and, and, and definitely not in the same way that like Back to the Future changes where he goes when he's back in the present, they have a new and better life. Like Biff is a supplicant to, you know, his, his dad now and stuff like that, right? Exactly, exactly. It's like she gets to explore everything but ends up on the same train track. It's a, it's a different, de- it's a detour back to the same journey. I just don't get the point. Like that doesn't seem interesting or empowering and I don't mean empowering in a kind of lame way but like like what, if the whole point of the movie was like, yeah, you might grow up to be miserable but, you know, fuck it. Do you think it's a case that Back to the Future ties into the 1980s Reagan fantasy where money equals happiness. And at the end of that movie, his parents are rich, he's got a nice car, he's got the life that he didn't have at the start of the movie and so his life is, quote, better, unquote, right? Francis Ford Coppola's version, and he's a filmmaker who's defined by making films about family, casting family, um, that's like a defining attribute of his filmography, family. And at the end, she ends up back with Nicolas Cage and is happy not just with her lot in life but I guess feels in some ways having explored the other, she realised what she had in the first place was actually pretty good and Nicolas Cage, even though he wasn't affected in the past, essentially somehow has redeemed himself and broken up with Janet, the girl he's having an affair with. Right. So therefore everyone's worked out that what they had was actually pretty good, even though Nicolas Cage didn't actually earn it. So she, that, that's right. So she goes through some sort of life-changing, time-travelling experience that compels her to forgive her cheating husband. I mean. Who coincidentally has broken up with his girlfriend they had the affair with, which is convenient because had she come back to the present and said, actually, you know what, uh, I want to be with you. And he's like, well, now I'm with Janet. <laughs> like the film doesn't work, does it? No, I I guess I just, it, it just seemed like a, a weird outcome or something. And, and it's not even like she was like, well, I realised that the most important thing to me in my whole life was my daughter, Helen Hunt. So... In the end, all of the the good and all of the bad, you know, uh, uh, in a scale hands, you know, are all worth it because at the end of the day we had a beautiful daughter and I wouldn't trade that for anything. It's sort of not even – it's just like, it's just like well, I guess I, I guess marrying this buffoon was the right thing to do. I, it just – I don't know. The, 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 the moral of the story just, just didn't work for me. It just – it's just kind of crap. I think you hit on the head in relation to Helen Hunt, her daughter. And I've heard this mentioned in other movies uh, where the characters divorce and they say, sweetheart, honey, to the kids, whether the kids are like five or the kids are 15 or 25. Look, it's not about you. We'll still love you even though we're breaking up. You and I would have heard this speech ourselves as kids when our parents divorced. And in the movies they often add beyond saying, you know, we, we love you to bits, it's not about you, it's about us. They also say we, you know, if it wasn't for dad or mum, you wouldn't be here and I wouldn't give that up for the world. Like it's a common sentiment you hear in movies. So even with all of the bad, 
there was some good. Mm. And if you read sort of biographies like, you know, in a court case, domestic violence or whatever, you often hear a victim of domestic violence saying the same thing, like everything was terrible but the one bright light was little Jimmy who I had and I'll always have Jimmy. And that doesn't outweigh necessarily the bad but it certainly makes it more palatable and easier because there's some good in my life. Exactly. And I guess she sort of gets an opportunity the character of Peggy Sue to investigate those things that she feels like she might have missed, you know, like the um, the the studly writer um, character and she ends up, you know, sleeping with him but then he wants to know if she would like to move to Utah to be in a polyamorous relationship. So I guess it would be she would realise that perhaps she didn't miss out on anything there. You know that 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 nostalgic greener grass was not that of an exciting proposition in the end. Though now, as I think about it, it turns out that after she did go back in time in her head, bangs him, he then dedicates a book to her that didn't exist before that. Yeah, exactly. And so- this is the confusing part: is that you don't quite get the butterfly effect fully. So, if Nicolas Cage had said when she wakes up in the present. I almost lost you once to that artistic guy at school because in this new past she bangs him and leaves Nicolas Cage briefly. If that influenced Nicolas Cage in the present to say, I'm reminded how I lost you once and that makes me realise how much I appreciate you and I'm wrong having the affair with Janet, therefore let's give another go, that would actually make sense, right? Because her past has indirectly influenced the present, not just with the ex-boyfriend writing the book dedicated to her, but Nicolas Cage actually making a decision influenced by her new choices from the past. But he hasn't referenced that at all. Like that has no impact on him reuniting with her. And you're right. Somehow though, there is a connection to that artist guy. And to say and to circle back to that point you made, to me it's kind of really lazy characterization that the one way they try and I think demonise this guy to make him a less attractive option because he's the, you know, little bit unusual bad guy, he'd be a goth in a different era, is to basically mention, <laughs> would you be into polygamy? Yeah, that's which very... <laughs> to make him as bad as Nicholas Cage's character or, you know, like the same sort of situation. <laughs> yeah. Weirdly, actually, the, the plot reminds me of that Simpsons episode with... Uh, um, uh, Artie Ziff, where Marge is tempted by the, yes, uh, yes. the yeah. guy from her past who turns out to be a creep. Like he's rich but he sort of like sexually harasses or so- assaulted with his, I think, his busy hands. Marge, I would appreciate it if you didn't tell anybody about my busy hands. Not so much for myself, but I am so respected it would damage the town to hear it. Good night. Yeah, right. And in the end she realises that Homer is right for her. And weirdly, I totally bought it in the Simpsons episode. So if the Simpsons could do it in 22 minutes, basically the same plot, but it just weirdly didn't work for me in this. You're bang on. I wouldn't be surprised if that episode was inspired by this film because I was trying to place where I'd seen this character before and now that you've mentioned Artie, Bang, you're exactly right. Like the characters are almost exactly the same. Yeah. But I think it works better in The Simpsons and that's 22 minutes. Yeah, totally. Um, 
what was it? Season two, episode 12, The Way We Were, The Simpsons. They they did it, admittedly, I guess, did it after a few years later, 1991, but did it better. So what is good about Peggy Sue, Ben? What what did what did you enjoy about this film? I um, want to say one more bad thing. Uh, we talked before about how, like, there's that issue about whether time travel oh, yeah, of course. Uh, sort of infects the movie the entire way. And we mentioned before how Terminator, Back to the Future, time travel at the start and the end, there's a lot of drama in between and the ripple isn't occurring as much as it's happening in, say, films like Back to the Future 2, right? I'd say this film, it affects even less of the movie because at least in Back to the Future, he and Doc, as a B-plot, are trying to get back to the future. Whereas because she kind of mysteriously is transported there, she... Beyond sharing ideas to, with her friend, who I thought was going to try and build her a device to get back to the future. Oh, that, I t- I, that's exactly what I assumed as well. Yep. Right. So the guy talks about being a physicist. So you naturally think, oh, of course, what he's going to be doing is trying to help her get back to the future. And all she's doing is sharing ideas like Xerox machines, pantyhose, radios and so on. So essentially he has no value other than perhaps she's enriching him. Mm. And maybe he'll share her wealth with her later on, which, by the way, doesn't happen either. <laughs> no, no. So, so essentially, that character has no purpose whatsoever. She doesn't go out with him. He doesn't become rich, like six, like massively rich in the future. Uh, he doesn't share his wealth with her if he was to become rich. Like, what is that point of that story? That that C plot at all? I couldn't. I couldn't. I couldn't work it out. It certainly, compared to the Back to the Future, it is not as a finely, finely tuned machine. Um, I mean, Back to the Future's time travel rules are super simple, but very effective. You know, it's a single timeline, and he has the photo, and he's fading from the photo. It's very nebulous. In Peggy Sue got married. There's no sense of any jeopardy. And I'm not saying the film needs to have jeopardy. But I certainly think that's one of the reasons that makes Back to the Future so successful narratively, you know, like the whole time it's this ticking this ticking clock of will he, unless he can do this thing, he will literally destroy himself from existence. Whereas in Peggy Sue Got Married, there's, there's, there's none of that. Gabe, is it this? You and I have talked before about some people come to the table of a genre with no experience in that genre but – they hear an idea, let's say they're from a drama background and they see a thriller where someone captures a woman and imprisons her. I've seen this a million times in horror films and whatever, but someone comes from the approach of a drama, right, Mm -hmm. an emotional drama. And so they call this concept a thriller where they have the same idea where there's a kidnapper or a serial killer or whatever and he imprisons this woman and the story unfolds. She tries to escape. She tries, you know, she tries to survive. Various things happen, right? If you come from the horror background or even like let's call it um, smart genre like Silence of the Lambs, then you know all the tricks in the book, right? All the cliches, the best versions of that particular concept. If you come from the drama background, you're kind of like thinking it's more dramatic than, say, a period piece romance. So for you it seems really dramatic and original, even though it perhaps isn't when seen through the eyes of someone else. It's kind of the same with Peggy Sue Got Married and Back to the Future. 
Basically, Peggy Sue Got Married is a drama with a very basic time travel element in the sense that someone without any explanation, without any sense of time rules, goes back to the past and essentially she wakes up. So it basically appears to be a a dream, you know, like a Twilight Zone episode of Amazing Stories, right? Mm-hmm. Which coincidentally Robert Zemeckis worked on. Like, mm-hmm. oh, mm-hmm. it was all a dream, except this is all a dream with slight consequences that somehow influence her present life. Whereas they really work hard, Back to the Future, to explain the rules of time travel. Mm. And credit where credit's due, they explain the rules so well and it resonates with people so much that it becomes pretty much the benchmark for time travel rules in every film after that, to the point that in Avengers Endgame, they actually reference Back to the Future in that movie, which is the most successful movie of all time, as like the pinnacle of what is how people now understand time travel. Star Trek, Terminator, Time Cop, Time After Time. Quantum Leap, Wrinkle in Time, Somewhere in Time. Hot Tub Time Machine. Hot Tub Time Machine. Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. Basically any movie that deals with time travel. Die Hard? No, that's not one. This is known. I don't know why everyone believes that, but that isn't true. Think about it. If you travel to the past, that past becomes your future. And your former present becomes the past, which can't now be changed by your new future. Exactly. Back to the Future is a bunch of bullshit. Totally. It's like a shorthand, right? Like, yeah. That's, yeah, yeah, yeah. In Looper, for example, we even have scenes where characters see that parts of their bodies disappear, which is 100% inspired by the disappearing characters in the photograph that Marty McFly holds. So maybe that's one of the key elements. Like they tried to explain time travel in a digestible way and those rules made sense. Maybe not make sense if you're Einstein <laughs> and you're a physicist, but they make sense enough. Like the, the rules are smart enough and consistent enough uh, that a mainstream audience can get on board and embrace them and it's that sweet spot between science and fantasy. This movie is made for everyone except you, Einstein. Fuck off. <laughs> smart guy. It's not for you. Gee. <laughs> exactly. Whereas Peggy, Peggy Sue got married, there was no effort to explain the catalyst as to how she time travels. They don't explain it away at the end as just a dream either because, as you mentioned, the artist character wrote a book about her, so mm. she seems to have time travelled. And arguably I'd call that lazy. Wow. That's a hell of an allegation. You've uh, you've hit uh, Jerry Lightling and Arlene Sanya the writers of Peggy Sue Got Married with, Ben. <laughs> well, when we get to the box office, let's just be the judge as to which uh, version of time travelling was more influential and entertaining. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay, okay, fair enough. Um, look, I, I agree. Um, whether, whether it's laziness, which I think is a, 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 an allegation that can be backed up by, by the text or within the text or just a choice, it's certainly less interesting Um in that you just don't really understand what's at stake. So whether Kathleen Turner gets back with Nicolas Cage or not, you know, imagine if she had to make a choice between living some life she always wanted versus having the daughter she loved, you know. It was a really clear choice. It's like you go this way, you might be happy, but you'll lose, like your daughter will not even exist. Like you are aborting your daughter from your future. You know, at least there's a sort of weird Sophie's Choice element there where there's a real, like, wow, um, what 
what could she do? What would you do? It just never even – just doesn't want to touch that, right? Yeah, really good point. I mean, Helen Hunt's character is placed as being one of the only positive, you know, aspects of Kathleen Turner's life in 85. Um, lean into that. Like, make it a Sophie's Choice decision. Like, I don't think I've seen a Sophie's Choice time travel movie. Have you? Great idea. Uh, no, I haven't. Let's uh, let's keep that in our heads. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay. Uh, actually, no, uh, we just wrote it uh, and it's been registered with the Library of Congress and copyrighted it and so on. That'll be our sequel. All right, any final thoughts before we move on to a bit of backstory and awards? Yeah, I mean, look, we'll get to it in the awards, but it does have a great a great cast, you know, and there's some really nice filmmaking. I mean, Francis Coppola, he's no schmuck. Yeah, this guy's quite talented. I think we should watch this space. This guy's going to go places. <laughs> <laughs> we'll, be here, we'll be hearing from him. Um, but, but, yeah, look, I think certainly, certainly touched on the more interesting aspects of the film where it came up short. So let us, let us time travel now into the next segment. Nice. All right. Uh, let's start with uh, Little Did You Know Behind the Scenes. Again, can't say much about Back to the Future that hasn't been said a thousand times. Uh, Peggy Sue got married? Um, <laughs> well, maybe this relates to, I guess, sort of behind-the-scenes antics, uh, but did you read about uh, Nicolas Cage's uh, character choices? And if so, I'd love you to uh, share them with the listeners. Well, I mean, there's he's making a hell of a choice and... Nothing he does in this movie works for me despite being a huge, huge Nicolas Cage fan and I absolutely love it when he does his mega acting and he certainly does it in this but he makes some bizarre choices but it's worth watching just for that. But apparently Kathleen Turner, I think she hated it. Yeah, she did. She hated it, right. So she she went to Francis Ford Coppola and complained about um, – he does this funny voice and he wears false teeth. Um, I think is, is the voice called like a nasal fry? Yeah, that's it. Right, right. Um, and it's just, it's just odd. Um, and, but apparently Coppola backed Cage and um, overrode her. I mean, of course he overrode her. She's just a, an actor. Um, but weirdly, apparently he also behaved like a total maniac on set and he was arrested for drink driving. Um <laughs> uh, and and according to Kathleen Turner's um, memoir, she accused him of stealing a dog, but he sued her <laughs> for that allegation. At the time or like years later? No, I think he, he sued her after the memoir came out, I believe. Um, um, but, but, but his performance in this movie, it's, it's a very weird choice and I don't think it, in and of itself it's kind of fun and weird, but I think it actually is not good for the film. Like... Like I think it's terrible. Should we save our review of his performance for the awards? Well, we, uh, okay, but we, we let's 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 okay, let's do it. Let's do it now. Let's do it now. We we just we just don't want to we just don't want to miss it. I think I think I think it's terrible. Yeah, it's it's awful. Like like in the future, or the future in the our past, her f- past, future, present. In her present, he comes across as such an idiot. You know, this cheating, dim-witted. You know, uh, Helen Hunt doesn't want anything to do with him. Kathleen Turner doesn't want him to do anything. He's sort of this, you know, drunk dumbass. And he's got this really affected voice and mannerisms. Uh, uh, 
It's just impossible to think why anyone would want to be with him. Yeah, then that's exactly the problem. So he comes across, first of all, I think it's a bad performance. He comes across as bad acting. Yeah. So you can say it's a choice, but it's a bad choice which results in bad acting. And it totally ruins the point of the movie because when they go back in, when she goes back in time, you've got to see a different version of him that is so likeable mm. that she makes the same choice again. Absolutely. Yeah. And not only, <laughs> no, I'm, I'm actually speechless because he's even worse in the past, I think, than he is in the present. <laughs> in the present, at least he's kind of somewhat just uh, more settled. I mean, he might be a bit of a, a ball bag and a bit kind of like um, distant and so on. But I find him incredibly annoying in the past. And there's a scene where the dad's being like the, the tough dad, like, you know, be good to my daughter or whatever. Mm. And in a good film or better scene, he basically has to win the dad over mm. or show that the dad is wrong, the dad is biased, and it's unfair for the dad to be prejudiced against the guy just because it's any guy going out with his daughter. But in this film, I am totally behind the dad. Like, in fact, I'm actually wondering <laughs> why is the dad not actually doing more? Because Nicholas Cage just comes across as an absolute weirdo. And oh man, you, as if you'd want your daughter dating this guy, you'd take him out, you'd belt him, and be like, "Get, get out, get out of here! You're no good. You're, a, you are a dead set loser." Yeah, totally, totally. It's so funny that there are scenes they show on YouTube, like clips of maniac Nicholas Cage performances. And there's a one from a movie I haven't seen where he plays a vampire. Oh, amazing film. Amazing. Which film's that? Vampire's Kiss, 1988. Amazing performance. Right. I'm stunned that they didn't show more scenes from this movie because he's just, I think, acting weird as a like as an actor, it's a weird acting choice. And then for the point of the movie, it doesn't help the cause of this love story in any way. Um Apparently, uh, Coppola actually did have an issue with Nicolas Cage's performance, but Cage actually oh, okay. convinced him it was a good choice. <laughs> wow, wow! But like, but like, but like, because he's so mannered, it really sets him up as a kind of idiot villain. Whereas, if if in the present it had been more of a kind of, have you ever seen that like 2012 Meryl Streep Tommy Lee Jones movie called like Hope Springs, where they're like an older married couple, but, you know, the sort of spark has faded in their relationship um, and they're just looking to, I guess, spice things up a little bit. But but it's sort of this mutual thing, you know? Yeah. If they Maybe if, if he had been a little bit more normal and they had sort of pushed the plot in a direction where it had just been like had they lost the spark from which they had from since high school, which, you know, like 20... 20 years into their relationship, maybe they just thought they'd gone in different, like, but instead he, it's just, he, his performance is so off kilter. It just, just tips the balance of the whole movie. I mean, like, fine, Jim Carrey's doing some big stupid acting, but that's all right because he's just playing like the... The clown. Exactly. But there's only space for sort of one clown and maybe this is not the movie where what I guess ultimately needs to be your romantic lead is such a oddball. Here's a comparison yeah. between the two movies, which illustrates the problem. I think Biff is acting less and acting more convincingly as the antagonist that Nicolas Cage is, is 
as the love interest in this movie. <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally, totally. Ah, to- like to, to say that Biff is more naturalistic <laughs> and more grounded from Back to the Future pretty much paints the problem. Yeah, I mean, do you think do you think Nicolas Cage? I guess his performance is somewhat comparable to Crispin. Glover, but the whole point of Back to the Future was that Crispin Glover couldn't have done what he did without the help of Marty McFly. Like, he is a loser and a failure. Nicolas Cage somehow manages all on his own. I mean, the bit where he sings the song in the club is quite cool, quite why some, you know, but I don't know. Look, it's. But Crispin Glover basically, in the first timeline, she falls for him basically. It's not Stockholm Syndrome. It's that one they've – I think it's Florence Nightingale effect or something like that. But essentially you fall for someone you care for, right? So that's how she falls for him in the first timeline. Then Marty goes back and Crispin Glover has to avoid Lorraine being sexually assaulted in a car park to impress her because in both timelines he's such a muppet. He lacks social graces and isn't – you know, initially in first impressions, attractive in personality or appearances, that it takes like being hit by a car or saving her for her to kind of notice him, right? A really dramatic incident. Right. In right. Peggy Sue Got Married, there is nothing that he does that kind of makes her fall for him in spite of his weird personality. No. And she keeps blaming him for things that he hasn't even done yet, which is – which is abusive um, in the past. <laughs> she keeps, like, saying, you know, you're going to cheat on me, you're going to do this, this, and he's very confused by it all. And, like, that's not cool either. Like, you know, what's what's future gaslighting, <laughs> you know? That, yeah, no- I agree. And also to that, yeah, and also to, like, the scene where they're about to have sex, yeah. where she's trying to encourage him to have sex, yeah. and he reacts like a priest. It's so weird. Um uh, I, I again, I, ca- I can't stress this enough. I find his performances, his choices, so extreme that it takes me out of the movie. Yeah, yeah. And I'm just wondering the entire time, what did Kathleen Turner's character ever see in him? Well, and the other thing is, like, I think the film he did right after this um, was Raising Arizona, and he does a big performance in that, but it is awesome and it works perfectly in the film because it matches the tone of the rest of the movie. Like He found filmmakers that suited his height and style. Exactly, exactly. Whereas in this, nothing about the rest of the movie feels like his performance is organic within its universe. Whereas, yeah, in, in Raising Arizona or Vampire's Kiss or, you know, um, you know, even his really heightened things in Leaving Las Vegas, which is still sad, like work within the... The, the universe and the tone of the film, but this just isn't that. So just missed. Missed indeed. All right. Um, casting what it should have could have. I mentioned uh, Deborah Winger for Peggy Sue Got Married, but Back to the Future, do you want to uh, inform our listeners who aren't aware about who was first cast as Marty McFly and how far that went? <laughs> yeah, this is pretty amazing, isn't it? So I think Zemeckis wanted Michael J. Fox originally, but he just wasn't available because of, um, what was his show? He was on School Ties? Not School Ties. Family Ties. Family Ties, yeah, before my time. Um, so they cast um, Eric Stoltz in the role. And I think they shot with him for five weeks before Zemeckis watched a bunch of uh, assembled footage, realised he wasn't right for it and uh, 
wanted to fire Eric Stoltz. I think Spielberg convinced Zemeckis that they needed to have a replacement in place before they fired Stoltz, otherwise the whole thing would get shut down. So they negotiated with Michael J. Fox, um, who agreed to take the part. And basically what he would have to do is go from set of filming his sitcom to the to the to the set of Back to the Future. So shoot like 18 hours a day. But anyway, they fired Stoltz, which would have been awful, and had to reshoot mammoth amounts. But it's not often that you fire your lead actor five weeks into production, is it? Like, that's crazy. It's amazing. And also, I think only as recently as like five, ten years ago, they showed some of the footage on YouTube and behind the scenes of the Blu-ray where you see Stoltz wearing the distinctive orange, you know, life preserver vest and mm. the, the parker and all that sort of thing. And he actually features in a few shots like over his shoulder and stuff. So they, he actually is still in the film, albeit over the shoulder and stuff when he confronts Biff in the diner. But I tell you what, Zemeckis seems to have nine lives because to have all these bombs, he finally gets this movie up. He then casts... The wrong guy. Now, admittedly, like you said, he wanted Michael J. Fox but couldn't get him. But still, he ultimately cast the wrong guy. And they give him the cash to shoot with a new actor after five weeks of main production. I mean- Yeah, it's crazy. How is this guy's career that's on the te- not, not destroyed? Now, obviously, the film was a massive success and success and money, you know, forgives all sins. But- God, I mean, he must have just been so worried that his career was over because that is an incredible mistake to make. And I think I've mentioned every week for the last six weeks in recent podcast episodes how great Hollywood is at casting. Mm. But this is an, a rare example where they got it dramatically wrong but then got it incredibly right. Yeah, and you just can't imagine anyone but Michael J. Fox in this role because he is – so perfect for it. Um, but, I mean, what about uh, Francis Ford Coppola? I guess he sacked um, Harvey Keitel a couple of weeks into Apocalypse Now and, I don't know, Wes Craven's Cursed, that werewolf movie, they recast or bloody everybody and reshot that movie, you know, twice. But it just doesn't happen a lot, does it? Can you think of any other examples in, you know, like it is very, it is a rare Pokemon yeah, it's, it's rare to make the mistake and then it's rarer to course correct and it ends up being a success because yeah. usually the film has damaged goods by then. So this, I think, you're right. Like you can't imagine anyone else but Michael J. Fox. And I think it's a great example of Michael J. Fox brings so much to the role beyond the page. This script is great, but he's just leaping off the screen as that character. And... Eric Stoltz would have been too weirdly intense and that was the problem when they were filming and it needed someone with this energy and it's pretty amazing he was, I think he was actually shooting gay for more like 20 hours a day. Like he was sleeping like two hours a night or something and to shoot these films back to back with the TV series and maintain that energy is remarkable and he's actually said, Michael J. Fox, that he can't even remember shooting Back to the Future because he was just running on adrenaline and just trying to remember his lines and get through both Back to the Future and Family Ties at the same time. To do that in a high-energy film is pretty remarkable. Yeah, totally. I mean, wow. It's it's amazing and good on him. Good on him too. I guess if only Coppola had fired Nicolas Cage from uh, Peggy Sue Got Married and also while he's at it, fired Sophia his daughter. Coppola because she's <laughs> terrible in it as well. Didn't he learn Jeez. the lessons from this that he could have applied to The Godfather Part 3? I know she gets a lot of shit I know. for that. 
<laughs> clearly not. Clearly not. Anyway. All right, let's jump to spot the Aussie. Were there any Aussies in either movie? I didn't spot any. Did you? Uh, I didn't, no. Um, no one No one jumped um, out. All right, let's jump to marketing methodology madness and missteps. I think we've discussed most things. Um, interestingly enough, this poster wasn't the first choice for Back to the Future, which is hard to imagine because I think it's iconic and we'll get to it in the poster awards, but – uh, they this was like a last minute poster they'd made in like a few hours, much like the Star Wars poster, like cobbled together very quickly at the last minute, which is kind of amazing because the poster I think is as important as the movie. So yeah, great example of where they got things right. This film seemed to be blessed by the gods in many ways. Um, let's jump to the box office and start kicking off the awards. So I won't even ask Gabe which one you think was the winner. But have a guess how much they each made, if you possibly can, knowing this was in a different time back in 85, 86. Okay, I have not looked this up, so I might end up being wildly off. Back to the Future, 100 million bucks. So Back to the Future made for $19 million. It does $211.5 million domestically in the US box office, which is damn amazing in 85. Another hundred and seventy-seven and a half internationally for a grand total of three hundred and eighty-nine million dollars. So nineteen eighty-five, three hundred and eighty-nine million. Yep. So wow, that's almost a billion dollar in uh, today's money. That's massive. Huge, huge. Yeah. Uh, Peggy Sue got married. Made for a similar budget. I couldn't find the budget. I think it was around nineteen million as well. Eighteen million dollars actually. It did forty-one million domestically, only a hundred and five internationally, for a grand total of forty-one and a half million dollars. Wait, didn't you say one hundred and five million internationally? So one hundred five thousand. Oh right, so forty-one million. Which might explain why this film didn't resonate with us because perhaps it didn't have that same cultural impression at the cinemas as Back to the Future did. No, certainly not. Yeah. Wow. There you go. Uh, let's go to Rotten Tomatoes. Which film impressed the critics, do you think? Uh, I mean, surely Back to the Future has has been pretty well reviewed, hasn't it? <laughs> These films both have been reviewed very well. Back to the Future has 96% on the tomato meter with, fan, with critics, I should say, versus 86% for Peggy Sue Got Married. Uh, the scores are interesting for the fans, 94% with the audiences for Back to the Future versus only 55% for Peggy Sue Got Married. Yeah, right. Does that surprise you? It does. I think it feels it – to me that feels fair. I feel that, that those scores are fair. I would love to have read reviews though at the time of Peggy Sue Got Married because some may have criticised Coppola making a you know more mainstream movie. Others would have said, oh, this is the sweet spot between – an indie drama and a genre movie. Yeah, right. Um, I think I think Back to the Future was also one of those movies that had incredible box office legs. Like didn't it stick around for a, a while? Like it was number one and then. Like half a year or something, I think. Yeah, yeah. So based on, you know, word of mouth, the sort of, you know, obviously pre-tomato meters back in the day, we just told our friends to go see something. Um, um, it's, it's pretty amazing how powerful that is, I suppose, right? Yeah, I think this was back in then like a Star Wars-esque era where, you know, films could actually be number one for a while, drop to number two and then go back to number one and just stick around because, you know, 
What else are we going to do? Play with your Nintendo? Huh? Yeah, your Nintendo. What are you, Duck with, Hunt? With your, dog, with your Donkey Kong at the arcade, uh, maybe. Good times. We, play, play Pong on your IBM. Ooh, nice. Uh, all right, let's jump to the awards game. Okay. Best title, um, Back to the Future, about time travel, or Peggy Sue Got Married, about time travel. <laughs> um, okay, well, it looks like looks like we both agree it's Back to the Future, doesn't it, Ben? Have I stacked the deck? Yeah, I think you yeah. have. <laughs> well done. Well played. Best poster. Okay. Describe the poster for our podcast listeners, particularly Peggy Sue, who is a poster that I think fewer people would have seen. Sure. Well, Okay. We'll start with Back to the Future then, which is the incredibly iconic Marty McFly standing next to the DeLorean looking at his watch with his glasses raised above his head with a what kind of expression. Of course, this poster is super iconic because in the sequel, Doc will be standing behind him and in the third one, that lady from the Wild West. Mary Steinberg. Um, the Peggy Sue Got Married poster is kind of bizarre because, again, like you joked about the title, the poster, and this is the poster that displays as the default on IMDb, I don't know if it was the theatrical poster at the time. Perhaps at the time it was Peggy Sue in some sort of weird time machine. Nope. Instead we get her looking through some sort of keyhole and then there's clouds. It looks more like she's got the keys to heaven. Yeah. This film looks like the sequel to Touched by an Angel. Yeah. Uh, it is a terrible poster. Like, this film gives you tells you nothing about the film. So the combination of the title and the poster, I think, jinx this film more than it was, you know, deserved. So she's looking through a keyhole surrounded by sky, holding a key. Holding a key. What's the deal with the key? Is that key even important? Did I miss something in the movie where like No, no. I think she's unlocking her past. Oh. But that combined with the title. Makes no sense. If I saw this, I feel it's a film about an angel who's found the keys to heaven. Mm, that's right. Like she's died. She's died and gone to heaven and it's about her trying to get past purgatory. But Yeah. Um, and even the title itself, we didn't really go into it, but she got married. I mean, that's not what the film's about. I mean, she did in the end. You could also say Peggy Sue breathed. But it's not like it, it, what would be, be funny is Peggy Sue went to school again or Peggy Sue got divorced and married or something like that, right, where you- Even just putting her name in the title seems to be really, you know, who does she think she is? John Wick? Uh, <laughs> exactly. Uh, <laughs> uh, but, yeah, I don't know. It's just, it's just odd, it's just very- very odd, and maybe because they don't have as high a concept time travel idea, it's not like you can put that on the poster. You know, it's not like she went back in time through a magical, you know, um, I don't know, blender, fucking magical dress, magical pair of shoes, magical pumpkin, look, magical anything that you could, the, you know, get that on the poster somehow. The clear title should have been graduation. Dot dot dot. Again, exclamation mark. And then you've got her on one side as the prom queen with the, you know, little tiara. And then on the other side, the older version of her wearing the same thing. Huh? 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 Yes. Well, Brian Grazer, like in The Simpsons, I'm holding up two large bags of cash. <laughs> Can't wait to do the sequel. Okay. <laughs> let's jump to the next award. So 
So far, it's Back to the Future cleaning up. Let's see how we go further down the track. Let's jump to the Bill Fleck Big Break Award, named after American actors Billy Bob and Ben Affleck. Gabe, who jumped from the indie movie scene into the Hollywood big time with these movies, starting with Back to the Future? Well, I mean, is it, this is the movie that made Michael J. Fox a superstar, right? Like, does this count for him? Yeah, it's, it's got to be him and Zemeckis. Uh, but I think, you know, on the tin, it's really got to be Michael J. Fox. I mean, I know he'd done Teen Wolf before this, but... But it was released after this. Oh, was it? That was made for a million dollars wow. before and Fuck. shot like in three weeks or something, which is it. How chuffed would you have been if you'd made Teen Wolf before oh. this, held it back and then been like, we got Michael J. You, you would be, you'd be so pleased. <laughs> Apparently he was really embarrassed because he was just worried. When he was doing Teen Wolf, he heard they were casting for Back to the Future and he couldn't do it. He missed out. And he wanted to be in Back to the Future. And he was like lumped with his $1 million film, which he thought was going to be terrible. And I actually really enjoy Teen Wolf and I rewatched it recently. It actually holds up. And the visual effects or the practical effects are actually amazing for a $1 million movie. But you're right. Like, if you're the producers of uh, Teen Wolf, man, you were just counting the cash that would roll in to ride the coattails yep. of Back to the Future. Like, Absolutely. What, like, what, what a one two punch for Michael J. Fox. Absolutely. Um, Arguably, I mean, maybe Nicolas Cage. This was Nick Cage's breakout role or, you know, Joan Allen. She'd sort of not been in much and Peggy Sue got married. Uh, Helen Helen Hunt? I mean, you know, like we know her from Mad About You and, and she got the Oscar nomination as well for the sessions, but big break for her as well. I think amusingly um, Helen Hunt was probably about the same age as Kathleen Turner playing her daughter. <laughs> I think she was like nine years younger, but only, but one year older than Nicolas Cage. Yeah, right. Well, there you go. Uh, but look. But Kathleen Turner got the Oscar nomination for this movie. Really? Yeah. Well, good for her. So that's got to be and, 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 a huge step up, right? And she is good in the film. Like, credit to Kathleen Turner. She, She's very good. The, the, the movie would be much, much worse without her. But look, let's give it to, let's give it to Mr. J. Fox. Done. All right, moving on. The Before They Were Famous Award, uh, or Blink and You'll Miss Them, uh, starting with Back to the Future. Ah, Billy Zane, come on. Oh, is Billy Zane one of the guys in Biff's gang? Dude, what? Come on, you you watch no. this movie every three weeks <laughs> with a bloody box of tissues next to you, as if you wouldn't have noticed Billy Zane in there. No. Billy oh, Zane. Okay. He's got hair. Oh, <laughs> Billy Zane. That's why I didn't recognise him. All right. Yeah. How about Peggy Sue got married? Well, maybe this is... Uh, who have we got? Who who turns up sort of? Hel- Helen Hunt. Helen Hunt. Joan Allen. Uh, uh, Jim Carrey. Jim Carrey's, I mean, he's only 22. It's it's like eight years before The Mask. Is this before their Famous Award? I forget again. Uh, <laughs> this is the before their Famous Award, yeah. Oh, then it's Jim Carrey. Come on. like Jim Carrey? One of the biggest movie stars of all time. All right. Done. Okay, that's an easy winner. You know, this is like when I saw him in the Deadpool and I was like, what in the heck is this? Do you remember seeing Jim Carrey in the Deadpool, that Dirty Harry movie where he plays like a uh, uh, a, me- a metal a metal rocker? No, what the fuck is the term for that? A rocker? Just a rocker. He's just a rock and roller. Anyway, blew my mind. <laughs> I digress. <laughs> um, okay, moving on. The Tommy Lee Jones Show Still at Water, named after the iconic performance of Tommy Lee in The Fugitive. Who stole the show 
in these two movies despite being in a small or poorly written role? So a, a, a show stealer but in a smaller role. Well, okay, you know someone who I absolutely love in Back to the Future and you tell me if they're eligible for this role but you mentioned it before, Thomas F. Wilson as Biff Tannen is so great. I agree. He's fantastic. He's great. He's really good. He's great in all three movies and I've always wondered why he didn't go further. I feel like for someone who is so iconic, I don't think he was quite pigeonholed, but I feel he should have had a more successful career beyond Freaks and Geeks. Well, I mean, over on IMDb, I think he's got, I was having a look at it this morning, you know, 130 credits. So I'm sure he's got his SAG card. He's probably getting good residual checks. He's. I hope he lives in at least a two-bedroom house somewhere. You know what I mean? But was he uh, Shooter McGavin in? No, he's not Shooter McGavin. <laughs> Who's that? Who's Shooter McGavin? Is it a? I think it was Billy Madison. Yeah, Billy Madison. No, Happy Gilmore. Yeah, yeah. Ha- <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Happy Gilmore. Shooter McGavin is played by Christopher McDonald. Okay, but they look the same, and they do. And yeah. in a perfect world, Christopher McDonald and Thomas F. Wilson should have teamed up as some kind of like. Unwholesome twosome. Like the film Step Brothers. <laughs> yeah, but just like the the asylum version of that. What are you looking at, butthead? You're in big trouble, though, pal. I eat pieces of shit like you for breakfast. Nice. That would be good. Uh, okay, so we've got uh, Biff down. How about Peggy Sue got married? I've forgotten what award we're doing again, Ben. <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah, I always forget, man. I get on a tangent. The Tommy Lee Jones Show Stealer Award. Okay, you mentioned Shooter McGavin, man, and instantly everything evaporates from my brain except for fucking Shooter McGavin. Let's get one thing straight. This is Shooter's tour. I've worked hard my whole life, paid my dues, and now it's Shooter's turn. <laughs> uh, I don't know. Who, who would you put up for this? As a show stiller? Yeah. I mean, I think they're all – I think Joan Allen's great in a small role. Um, it's probably not not enough. Um, true, true. Barry Miller um, I think was pretty good uh, playing Richard. Uh Mm. Oh, look, let's just give it to yeah. Thomas F. Wilson. Let's give it All to right, Biff. All right, done. Okay. Because he's great. Moving on. The, ooh, <laughs> the Mickey Rourke Award. Named in honour of the actor who squandered his chance to kick on with bigger roles. Who didn't make the most of their opportunities after appearing in these films? Gabe, back to the future. I don't know. It's tough. Could you Crispin Glover? I don't know, like yeah. maybe? No. To me, he's definitely the winner here, yeah. So oh, okay. he apparently didn't get on with Zemeckis. Sorry, let me correct that. He was unhappy with Zemeckis and Bob Gale that at the end of the movie, success was defined by wealth and the fact that these characters had a nice house uh, and a good car meant everything was, quote, better, unquote. And so he disagreed philosophically with the moral of the story. Right. Apparently he's had an ongoing feud with Bob Gale forever. He respects Zemeckis, but Bob Gale has bad-mouthed him and so he's bad-mouthed Bob Gale, the co-writer, back. Bob Gale hasn't had much in his life beyond Back to the Future, but to be fair, if you wrote all three Back to the Futures, you can do whatever you want. And he basically is the guy that's been there for the animated series He's at every possible convention. He does Q&As. He invests a lot of time into those Blu-ray behind the scenes. Like he is all in on his legacy as the co-creator of Back to the Future and therefore he's 
use that time to make it very clear that he doesn't respect the choice that Crispin Glover made. And like you said earlier, that to choose the more, quote, nuanced performances, unquote, which says a lot given how big that performance is. And that's why they recast him in Back to the Future 2 with the other actor and the other actor upside down on those floating shoes so you couldn't quite clearly see his face and why they recut footage of Crispin Glover into that movie because they didn't want him back. Apparently he wanted more. Right. And he su- did he sue them for that or something? So, yeah, there's two elements here. He wanted more money and they offered him the same money as like Leah Thompson and everyone else but Michael J. Fox, thinking that of course he would agree to that. He said no, allegedly. And so they say he said no to the second and third film because he wasn't getting paid enough. He said he said no to the second and third film because the moral of the first film wasn't to his liking, as in about the success defined by wealth. And then they cut footage from the first film into the second film and he had that landmark case, which is you can't use an actor's li- uh, likeness uh, without their permission or without remuneration. So basically he set a huge Hollywood precedent in relation to the way that yeah, right. the image of an actor is used subsequently, which is pretty amazing. Is this the same precedent that um, – um, remember, I think in Alien 3 they use a photo of uh, – Hicks. Michael Bean. Which is the character, yeah, that Michael Bain plays. And he then was pissed off that they wrote, they killed him off off screen, but then also pissed off that they used a, f- a shot of him that he sued and ended up getting paid the same amount as he got for Aliens, for Alien 3. Totally. Yeah, that's it. For just a photo. So is that this precedent? I think he- Could well be. Coasted off that precedent. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> he coasted off the precedent. Okay, well- Or was around the same time, actually. Yeah, but yeah. Similar premise, similar idea. All right. Well, how about this as a as a you mentioned him, but what about Bob Gale as a nominee for this award? I mean, you've wrote three of the most successful uh, sort of action adventure sci-fi films of all time, and then I think the only other movies he really wrote was Trespass. I think he wrote Trespass. Um, Holy shit, this is a great call, Gabe. I've just jumped to his filmography on IMDb. Trespass, by the way, which rules. Just If you haven't seen Trespass, Trespass, two big thumbs up. Okay, I've just jumped to IMDb based on that suggestion for the nominee and it just says Back to the Future and then it has like, you know, game, characters. It just says Back to the Future the entire way through his filmography and he's barely done anything else but that. That is amazing. Yeah, I don't know, Gabe. I mean... I guess you could say that he hasn't done more, but he was so successful, he's okay. Whereas Crispin Glover perhaps missed an opportunity. He lives in a house in Prague, apparently in a mansion, and has dated a bevy of attractive models. So he has- Who, Bob Gale or Crispin Glover? Crispin Glover. Right. Oh, I don't know. You make the call. I'm torn. All right. Um, I think Bob Gale. I mean, Trespass was great, but it still seems slightly- Odd. You know, Crispin Glover was still in Wild at Heart as Cousin Dell. Yeah, and it's also interesting too that he hasn't actually collaborated once more with Zemeckis. Like, it's been 30 years, not once. Well, no, no, they they wrote Trespass together in 1992. Oh, okay, but since then. Oh, yeah, no, totally. Like, yeah, okay. All right, Bob Gale gets it. But you know what? He's doing very well. Does he need this award? Probably not. Does he want this award? Probably not. <laughs> no, he can he can melt it down and add the the tin and copper from the award to his pile of doubloons. <laughs> nice. Okay, moving on. The winner winner chicken dinner award. 
who came out on top in each of these movies, either in front of the camera or behind. Oh, we could do this one quickly, right? Yep. Everyone in Back to the Future. Yep. And then maybe Kathleen Turner in Peggy Sue Got Married because she got nominated for an Oscar. Done. All right, moving on. Good. Best Dialogue Award. What's your favourite quote? Back to the Future. Well, you're the Back to the Future super fan. You hit me. What's your, What's the one that sticks with you forever? Great Scott! 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 I know this is heavy. Well, there you go. Pretty, pretty famous line from it, isn't it? There's so many lines. Um, Calvin, why do you keep calling me Calvin? Well, that's your name, isn't it? (laughs) It's Calvin Klein? It's quite horrible when you do it, Ben. It's written all over your underwear. (laughs) (laughs) Sam, please Um, insert the better version or maybe you want to contrast my outstanding performance with the authentic version and let's just see which one plays better. Yeah, maybe put them... I might say there's a chance that mine might actually be superior. Put them at the same time. Make them some sort of harmonious horribleness. Um, Calvin, why, why, why do you, do you keep, keep calling, calling me Calvin? Calvin? Well, that is your name, isn't it? Calvin, Calvin Klein? Klein? It's, it's written, written all over your underwear. Oh, I guess they call you Cal. What about George McFly's, hey, you get your damn hands off her? Oh, that's good, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's pretty, that's pretty good. I, people used to throw that around when I was at school. Hey, you, get your damn hands off. Um, I like uh, (laughs) when Marty McFly keeps saying stuff about heavy, like, this is heavy, and Doc Brown says, wait, has nothing to do with it. Just the obsession didn't get the reference to heavy as a physicist. Funny. Very good, very good. It's math jokes. Yeah, I I, I can't do the lines. I can't do the lines, Gabe. I'm sorry. No, um, and I don't mean to... It's my fault, Ben. I laughed at you when you delivered Lorraine's lines in a pitched-up voice. That's my fault. It's a super quotable movie, isn't it? I mean, there's so many great lines. Um, Actually, Sam, there are so many great lines. If you've got a chance to put any of them in here and deliver them much more than me, much better than me, please do so because I feel I just can't, you know, do you know, do wait to how memorable these lines are. Next Saturday night, we're sending you back to the future. 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 Wait a minute. Wait a minute, Doc. Are you telling me that you built a time machine? Out of a DeLorean? Yeah, I guess you guys aren't ready for that yet. But your kids are going to love it. What are you looking at, butthead? If you put your mind to it, you can accomplish anything. So why don't you make like a tree and get out of here? So you're my Uncle Joey. Better get used to these bars, kid. Who's president of the United States in 1985? Ronald Reagan. Ronald Reagan? The actor? Then who's vice president? Jerry Lewis. My calculations are correct. When this baby hits 88 miles per hour, 
You're gonna see some serious shit. Hey, Doc, we better back up. We don't have enough roads to get up to 88. Roads? Well, we're going, we don't need roads. Um, let's move to Peggy's who got married. Anything jump out there as being memorable, Gabe? Given that she was a Oscar nominee. Um, I mean, we certainly weren't running around the playground as nine-year-olds quoting Peggy Sue Got Married. <laughs> Playing with your uh, eight-inch figurines. Um, <laughs> the Joan Allen figurine driving the car. <laughs> hey, look, from one of those... Um, um, uh, what what do you what do you, what's the classy word for fi- figurine? Like what do dorks call their figurines so that they don't? I once bought. Here's a little digression for you. Ben. Action action figure. Okay, action I figure. once bought a Jean Renault the professional action figure. Yeah, I've seen that at your okay. house. My yeah. dad kept referring to it as my dolly. <laughs> <laughs> that, uh, f- f- uh, fuck you, dad. Uh, it's not. A, and then, but ever since then, I'm ashamed to put it out. So, you know. <laughs> Did you buy it though when you were like twenty five? Oh yeah, yeah, totally. I bought it, you know, like ten years ago or something. And it's like So when did he see it? Uh I bought it. I must have had it in the we shared an office. Um uh and I must have bought it, I got delivered there and I was I was like, ah, oh, check this out. Yeah, nice dolly, Gabe. <laughs> okay, <all right. laughs> Thanks, Dad. <laughs> so you know, let this be a lesson to all you dorks with your dollies. <laughs> like slight segue. Um a lot of props and um you know, toys based on movies like you know, those, are they called bobbleheads or the pop the pop? Oh tart, yeah, yeah. Pop tarts. What are, what are those? What are those little mini ones pop, called? Pop uh, zones or anyway, chupo chupo pop. I don't know. I can't yeah, something. yeah. With the big zuko zumpo. <laughs> uh, Gone with the big heads. Uh, I don't have time to research it. Sam, what's they called? <laughs> yeah, but those things, I just find them so annoying. But I do actually think it's cool. Like. I don't want to claim credit for this, Gabe. Okay. And this is coming from me. You know that for about a 15-year window, I thought I invented the expression, how's it hanging? Oh, that's like I invented the expression, good times. Oh, okay. So when did you first find out that you weren't the actual architect of that expression? Well, I feel I still am. But when did you find out you weren't the architect of- um... So I got to about 30 and I've been insisting that I was the, you know, I started that expression- when I was about 17. Right. So for 13 years I held it as my own, as a badge of honour. And I, I would really juke it out over a couple of beers with people that I was actually the guy that started that. I, I, it was, I was incredulous that someone else could have possibly come up with it because no one else I knew used it. And whenever I used it, people thought it was cool. <laughs> and I saw like a 1970s movie that was like before I was born and they used it. And I went, oh, Okay. This is basically 25 years earlier. Yeah, okay. But I'd never heard of it anywhere and I think I just hit the zeitgeist too late. <laughs> um, yeah, right. Well, um, how about good times? Well, I know good times have been around. I feel I repopularised it in the early 90s. Um, I'd also like to. Didn't Fonzie say good times? Didn't Fonzie say that in Happy Days? I don't know, perhaps he did, but I, I certainly brought it back, okay? The other thing I'd like to lay some credit to while we're here and I'll just, you know, set up my little piece of turf, I, I feel and perhaps this has dated and is a small element of cultural appropriation, I feel like I brought back or introduced using the term mang to the, to the, to the some sort of common usage amongst 
a certain group of people. Was that Mang or Mong? Ma- no, not Mong, dude. That's fucking, you can't say that. Mang instead of man. <laughs> That's why I was double checking. Mang. No, 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 I did not. Mang. Like, hey, Mang, instead of <laughs> which. <laughs> See, man ain't like a dog. And when I say man, I'm talking about man is in mankind, not man is in man. Because man, well, we're a lot like a dog. But man, he know about death. But we ain't gonna get no move on in this world lying around the sun, licking our ass all day. I mean, we man. <laughs> you a woman all, but we man. <laughs> anyway. Let's move along. Well, I don't remember what this award was. Whatever it was, we're skipping it. <laughs> uh, best quote clearly goes to Back to the Future. Okay, great. It's, it's, it's cleaning up so far. Sounds good, man. Until we get to the <laughs> Nicolas Cage Award. All right, moving on. The Nicolas Cage Chewing the Scenery Award. <laughs> <laughs> they're starting with Back to the Future. Okay, Crispin Glover. Crispin Glover. Peggy Sue got married. Okay. <laughs> Nicolas um, Cage. <laughs> yeah, of course. Okay, so... <laughs> Wasn't Nicolas Cage, he was actually beaten recently for his own award. I can't recall which movie it was, but he actually was pipped by someone else. The question is here, does he get his own award or does Crispin Glover get it? Because Crispin Glover is big, but I think it works the movie, whereas Nicolas Cage is big, but it's bad for the movie. Yeah. Look, as we've discussed, as we discussed, let's give it to Nick, but this is a, an this is. This is this is an award of shame. It's- I'm not sure if it's worse to get the award named after you or not. <laughs> like, but sometimes I feel like this is an award that you know I would give this award to Gary Oldman in The Professional. You know, oh, great example, great example. But it's an amazing performance. It's an amazing performance. You know, he's chewing the scenery, but works for the movie perfectly. But, who- but so so this award can go either way. You know, who's our mate uh, Caruso? Yes, from. Jade and Proof of Life, right? And is it NCIS or CSI Miami, right? Mm-hmm. He chooses the scenery, mm-hmm. but actually can work for the film. So Proof of Life playing off Russ Crowe, who's very grounded, it works. It works. Mm-hmm. Nicolas Cage in this film, mm-hmm. Peggy Sue got married, not so much. Not so much. All right, moving on. The Taking a Paycheck Award speaks for itself. Back to the Future. I don't think – I think everyone was just grateful. Like this film was a film where I think everyone was really thankful for the opportunity to mm. and no one was slumming it for the money. Fair to say? Fair to say. Yeah. Oh, by the way, I just realised. Yeah. Little, do a little uh, – Sam, a little record scratch. We've got to mention, of course, Claudia Wells who played Jennifer in Back to the Future whose mother died unfortunately in real life. And so she took a break from acting and didn't return for the sequels and now runs like a Prada store or Gucci store or something like that in LA. But clearly had a chance to kick on. So just to plant a flag, back a few prizes, she could have been a nominee for the Mickey Rock Award. Just saying. Ben, I'm confused enough by this awards as normally. Now you want to go back in time to award... Claudia Wells, some it's just it, you're turning my brain into spaghetti, mate. You mean back in time, a song by Huey Lewis? Is that, is that the name of an actress? I can't stand. Play it, Sam. Play it. Gotta get back in time. I'm 
Okay. Taking a paycheck award. Back to the present. Uh, any nominees? I don't think so in Back to the Future. How about Peggy Sue got married? Did Francis Ford Coppola do this film as part of some sort of contractual obligation? Yeah, I thought so. I read about the background to it. I don't think so. But it kind of feels like it might have been like that, doesn't it? Well, I mean, maybe this and, you know, Jack. This is, uh, there's a couple of very curious movies on his I know. on his resume that you really feel like the mob had something on him and had pressed a, <laughs> you know. I'm going to give it to Francis Ford Coppola for this movie because even if he wasn't forced to, he needed it. Well, even if he wasn't forced to, he should go around and say he was. <laughs> That's harsh. All right. Uh, Frankie, the Taking Paycheck Award is waiting for you in Australia. Moving on, the Simon Toblowski Award a.k.a. hates that guy, named after the famous character actor who played Ned Ryerson from Groundhog Day. Gabe, which actor triggered hates that guy when he or she appeared on screen? Do you think Crispin Glover is a hates that guy kind of guy? No, because I don't think he's been in enough movies since this movie uh, to be recognised that way. I reckon Thomas F. Wilson would be. Okay. If you saw him in something, you'd go, hey, it's Shooter McGovern. Okay. Even though it's not. Um, uh, I reckon Christopher Lloyd could be. What a, uh, What about Courtney Gaines, who is in um, Back to the Future, who played Malachi in Children of the Corn and Hans Klopek in The Burbs? I know you're both big fans of both of those movies, Ben. Surely you would recognise him. Wow. Okay. Uh, deep Cut. Didn't recognise any of them. Okay. Uh, okay. How about Biggest Who Got Married? Uh, Joan Allen? Yeah. How great's Joan Allen, though? She's Any time I get to mention Joan Allen's great. Joan Allen's great. So I'm, Allen. I'm saying Joan Allen. She's my pick. There's actually a guy, though, who I saw who I couldn't quite pick later on. Maybe it was Will Schreiner. He's a kind of uh, slightly kind of overweight guy who's a bit kind of um, – Rude. Do you recall the guy I mean? Oh, he, like, comes up to them at the – he's a sort of bully character. Yeah. Who's that? I don't know. Okay. <laughs> All right, well. Um, there's one other nomination, Ben, Kevin J. O'Connor. Okay, who's Kevin J. O'Connor? He plays – it's so bizarre seeing him in this playing the sexy guy, the poet guy, because he basically went on to a career of playing very weaselly guys. Um, he plays Benny in The Mummy. And he plays Joey in Deep Rising. Oh, yes, you're right. You're right. He, it's like he's kind of on the cusp of attractive slash weird, but you're right, he aged into being an extremely weird character. Yeah, like, and he's definitely in lots of films, you know, like, you know, he's in uh, Colour of Night and Virtuosity, um, Armistad, The Mummy, you know, the big movies that you might recognise him in. There Will Be Blood, he turns up in that. Um, well, here's the biggest character actor turnaround. If you go from being the love interest sexy guy times in Pegasus Who Got Married to playing Igor, the yeah. hunchback, in Van Helsing with Hugh Jackman, yeah, that pretty much sums it up, I think. Yeah. Uh, okay. Who's going to take it? Which Give one? Give it to Joan Allen. Uh, Joan she's Allen. Just, okay. She's just real good. All right. The Delroy Lindo Award for great actors who aren't cast often enough. God, there's a lot of awards, isn't there, Ben? I know. <laughs> Back to, the, back to the future. Who's not cast enough? Any takers from that one? Well, bloody. Uh, we've, we've mentioned it before. Thomas F. Wilson. Yeah, I agree. Okay. And how about Peggy Sue? Hmm. Kathleen Turner? No, she had know. options. Joan, Joan Allen? 
like she's been in lots of. I don't know. Yeah, Joan Allen. I've always thought Joan Allen. I mean, I fell in love with her in the Bourne films later in her career. <laughs> you fell in love. With- I did. I fell in love with Pam Landy that day. <laughs> I did. <laughs> I like my CIA agents in pantsuits with a lot of direction. <laughs> there you go. Um, I'm giving. All right, we'll give I'm it. Giving it to, I'm giving it to uh, Pam Allen. Give it to Pam. Or Joan Wait, Allen. Did you combine? <laughs> I combine. Pam Joan Landy. Landy. Pam Allen. <laughs> <laughs> okay, good, good. Joan Landy it is. Okay. Uh, let's move on to the Memphis Reigns Award, inspired by the absurdly named character played by Nick Cage from Gone in 60 Seconds. Who steals the cake, Gabe, this time round? Uh, I don't think. Man. Marty McFly is a pretty funny name. Yeah, Marty McFly is a very funny name. Like it's like Clark Kent. It sort of. Rolls off the tongue, and McFly is just a weird name. Biff, Biff Tannen. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm putting it down to Marty McFly. Mm. How about over at Peggy Sue? No, they're all just sort of regular-sounding, boring names, aren't they? Boring. Yeah. All right, Marty gets it. Okay, moving on. The Memento Award name for moments you completely forgot about until you rewatch these movies. I mean, anything. You must know Back to the Future so well, Ben. How could you forget anything from it? Well, I've seen it so many times, I actually know it too well. So I can't name any key moments. So I would say nada. Mm. It's more that when you watch it these days with a 2020 lens, things stand out differently. So, for example, at the time, I remember the line where Marty McFly talks about his dad being a peeping Tom (laughs) because when he's sort of like watching Lorraine with binoculars from a tree and falls down, gets hit by Lorraine's dad and that's the point where she falls in love with him. It's kind of like a gag Mm. but you watch it 35 years later and it's like, man, this guy's a pervert. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, there is some slightly, uh, there's certainly some script choices and stuff that I think you probably wouldn't make now. Yeah, like the sexual assault thing as well in the car. Like I think she's almost assaulted three times and their plan is for Marty to pretend to assault her and then for George McFly to come up to the car and save her. Like that's their that's their plan. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Imagine when he comes back from the future, from the past, into the present, having saved it, and then his parents are like, yeah, if that plan had worked, they'd be like, yeah, you, you've grown up and you really remind me of the young man whom I liked who then attacked me in a parking lot. Exactly. It's like it's one thing... It's one thing to name our kid after you, but it's kind of weird that you look exactly like him. Yeah, as well. perhaps some semen sort of jumped from his pants into me. <laughs> <laughs> That's why you look just like him. <laughs> this podcast does not endorse any of Gabe's jerks. <laughs> hey, I didn't say the c word. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we leave that to our guest host, Sam Haywood. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Sam, do not insert your c word here. There's no cure for being a. Of course, you named your sword. Lots of people name their swords. Lots of. <laughs> the Die Hard Award, named after the influence of Die Hard on inspiring a subgenre. Well, I, I think the fact that Back to the Future has been mentioned on screen, like in Looper, like in Endgame, but also just influenced the rules of time travel, uh, including the Terminator movies, mm. pretty much says it all. Oh, yeah. Uh, Peggy Sue got married. I don't think has left a cultural memory in any way, except for perhaps just that concept of returning to a school reunion and wishing your life was different. But in those films, basically, people kind of like lie about their past and go to a reunion. Like that film, 
I don't know, Michelle and Romy's great movie. High School Reunion where you try and be a better version of yourself. Absolute banger. Total classic. Oh, gross point blank where you try and kill someone at the reunion. Yes, also a classic. Um, yeah, so I think Back to the Future easily takes it, Gabe. Sounds good. All right, it's come to that time of the podcast, the Milking the Speed Cow Dry Award, uh, named after the infamous sequel Speed 2. So, Gabe, let's say there's a chance to pitch a sequel to either of these movies. I think it's pretty fair to say that Back to the Future is one done and three and done, right? Yeah, and I think We've got Peggy Sue. didn't Zemeckis and Bob Gale say there'll never be a sequel or reboot while they're alive because they own the- But they are going to die. So it's yeah. So the question is, yeah. if we're going to do a sequel, I figure it's got to be a sequel to Back to the Future, right? We're doing a sequel to Back to the Future. Yeah. Okay. We do a Back to the Future sequel at number four when they die, and the minute they die, the executive pulls our script out of the drawer and goes smack, smack bang into production. Wow. Or does a reboot? Wow. The question is, do they reboot or do a sequel? There's no way you can reboot back. People will. People will burn the studio down. It's such a beloved classic. Um, All right. So we do a sequel to Back to the Future 3 and we can't bring back our characters because they're getting older. It would be actually hard on Joe Fox unless we try and incorporate his Parkinson's into the story authentically. But he's not the boyish character he used to be. Doc Brown, uh, Christopher Lloyd looked the same the entire time. So we could bring him back easily. What do you think? Well, I mean, you could do one of those generational things that worked so well with Indiana Jones Part 4 where Michael J. Fox has a son, you know, and through some sort of shenanigan, perhaps his son doesn't go back to save, you know, perhaps you don't make it a carbon copy. It's not like he's going back to save Marty McFly's marriage, but perhaps his son somehow discovers the DeLorean or, you know, Emmett Brown's desiccated corpse sitting in the DeLorean, um, kicks the corpse out and goes back in time to some all-new adventure. You know, with CG, we could conceivably do a younger version of Michael J. Fox, right? Like Paul Walker recreated in Fast and Furious 7, like younger versions of Robert Downey Jr. in Iron Man. Like, theoretically, Michael J. Fox could play him, his current self as an older person, like he was the older person in Back to the Future 2, and use CG to create a younger version of him. It's possible. Yeah. But what's the, what's the, what's the, so you're suggesting that Marty McFly has to go back one last time? Back to the Future 4 goes to Back to, what if Back to the Future 4 goes back to the end of Back to the Future 1? But isn't that what Back to the Future 2 is? Yeah, but before that plane lands, it's like doubling down. It's like a triple cheeseburger. And so we see, so we, the character we follow is rather than following the younger George in the past, the dad of Back to the Future, we go through the lens of a sympathetic older version of Marty as he meets his younger self and says, hey, Marty, don't go back and don't go into the future and Back to the Future too. Okay. What about? Is it a hat on a hat on a hat? <laughs> what perhaps? What about? I just pitch an alternate idea to you, to you, Ben. What about if Doc Brown discovers that t- time isn't in fact a single linear path? He's looking at that one line, and then he moves around and realizes that there's many lines behind it, and he realizes that he and Marty McFly have actually lived hundreds and thousands of different time traveling lives. The multiverse, the multiverse. Oh wait. That's basically just um, Jet Li, the one. Well, yeah, but also 
fucking Pickle Rick. Which is basically just a ripoff of Back to the Future. Uh, oh, yeah. I mean, their names, you know, um, Morty, Marty and um, Rick. So the sequel has to be basically a hat on a hat of Morty and Rick where we circle back to if Back to the Future was the inspiration to Morty and Rick. Rick and Morty. Then Rick and Morty. Then they become inspiration to the sequel to Back to the Future. Yeah. Alternatively, we could go back in time to stop ourselves from pitching a sequel to Back to the Future and all of the 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 vitriol would be thrown in our direction. So do we do a sequel or not? Do we und No, we turn this one down. I think this is a <laughs> this is a poison chalice. <laughs> all right, so the first time ever we're gonna turn down the option for one million dollars to write a sequel to either film and just say, you know what? It's too good. We can't walk on the corpse the graves of Bob Gale and Zemeckis, we'll refer to a sequel to Sudden Impact. Fuck. Wait, that just came out. Oh, we'll do another sequel. <laughs> yeah, that's right. They, they they can have a few more, you know, people are gagging for them. And that's how we avoid a sequel to the all-time classic trilogy, Back to the Future. <laughs> nice. All right, Gabe, that brings us to the end of the show. A big thanks to our awesome sound editor, Sam Haywood, for making this episode sound so good. You can find Sam at at Showtown Sound on Insta. Gabe, where can listeners find more of your work and musings? Twitter at Gabe Dowrick. And I'm at Ben Phelps on Twitter and Insta and youtube.com slash Ben Phelps. You can find this podcast and all my others in the usual places like Apple Podcasts, Spotify and Google Podcasts. Thanks for listening, folks. This was a lot of fun, Gabe. Uh, If you enjoyed it, share with your mates. Take care. Don't time travel. But stay tuned for another Twin Movies podcast very soon. Stay safe, Gabe. Good times, man.